Welcome to the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. I'm Lee Gerstman, and I was banned from this podcast, and I'm not too happy about it. So, fuck these guys. Go to hell. So, here they are. Dr. Fuck and Wadzilla. Enjoy. I know I will, even if they did ban me. Fucking assholes. Smack them a gob, everybody. Dr. Fuck here with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell alcoholic and Wadley. As he call, Ian is destroyed from Nashville. Because that's too much talking. Too much drinking. Oh, that's what it is. And believe me, I'm tired too, but Ian, man, you know, I got to bring this up. I've told several people this, Ian, but I'm going to have to tell you. Um, You know, the problem with hanging out with Ian is that he's not an eater, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I wake up ready for breakfast. This motherfucker cracks open beards for breakfast. He does not care for food. And it's really difficult when you're staying in a hotel that's extremely expensive with food to find somebody to take you somewhere to eat. And luckily, Ian wanted to get beer. So I thought, hey, (laughs) if Ian gets beer, I can get food. So in a way, it kind of worked out, you know? I know. I should actually drink more than I do because I'd be a lot thinner. You can tell I only drink when we do the show and on the weekends and at podcast conventions. (laughs) Oh, my God, did you drink. Especially Sunday. (laughs) Sunday, he woke up to a beer. And, dude, you were just cracking beers at 2, 3 in the morning like it was nothing. I was, I was like, I couldn't believe that there was that much beer in Nashville. <laughs> I, was, I was perplexed. But anyway, yes, this is our, pre, uh, our, our Nashville recap show. And, oh, my Lord, was it good. And you know how, and, oh, yeah. and this is going to be a two-parter because we interviewed so many people that uh, it's it, it's going to make this thing a three-hour episode, you know. And plus, like the next one, uh, the next episode will have, you know, some of the interviews and us live, which, oh my God, dude. If you guys thought the first one was fucking hilarious, woo! The, this, the, yeah. Our live show this time was unbelievable, but we'll get to that. Let's do a yeah. timeline thingy, and let's just yeah. go through a timeline. But, uh, I was just going to say about you know the live show. Unfortunately, we didn't have a, a Sammy Hagar record to tear up, but we tore up the fucking stage. And uh, yeah, yeah that, 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 wait till you hear that shit, kids. And I, and I I believe we tore up uh, Sammy Hagar verbally. Isn't that shocking, kids? <laughs> so uh, all right, let's start from the beginning. Ian gets there, no problem. And he's the guy with the connecting flights. I waited nine hours at the Fort Lauderdale airport with delay after delay after delay after delay. Now, I almost didn't go. I said to myself, man, one more fucking delay. I'm going home. I can't take this no more, right? Right when I say that, not to mention the person's name, because, you know, we don't want to give any publicity because that's what he wants. There's uh, somebody out there that's not a fan of Dr. Fuckalicious. It has everything to do with jealousy and being a, a shut-in. And uh, he said, oh, I figured this would happen. And I said, oh, really? How'd you figure that? And he says, just get your, 
just get over here, bitch boy. Now, that comment right there, just get over here, bitch boy, means he wants to face me in Nashville. So I said, I don't give a fuck if there's any more delays. I'm going. And sure enough, there was another delay. Now, if this guy never would have left a comment, I would have left. I wouldn't. I would have missed this extremely kick-ass weekend. So I want to thank the real bitch boy for doing that because when I got to Nashville, that guy wasn't there, nowhere to be found. He didn't go, but he thought he he thought I was making up this nine-hour delay at the airport. So I wouldn't face him. Number one, I didn't know he was there. And number two, I didn't make that shit up. <laughs> Believe me. Uh, nine hour delay. I, I think I could have come up with a better excuse if I didn't want to go. To face this scary guy. That ended up not going. And a shout out to Zack Attack. Who said I ran away from him last time. And uh, uh, I know what he looks like now. Uh, he was in a band and somebody sent me his band picture. He's got long hair. I know what he looks like, and believe me, I was looking for him. And he looks like a bitch. <laughs> uh, no, actually, he kind of looks like a cool rock star, which is weird. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so um, but according to somebody, he was talking like he was there. So another another proof that this guy is a full of shit. Or maybe he was there in a ponytail, or he shaved, and I didn't notice. But he didn't come up to me. And also, I'd like to bring up last year when he. Said I, I, I ran away from him. Uh, Ian, you were there. Uh, if I would have ran away from him, I did come back in, didn't I? You know? I was in there a long time at the last year's one. I would go out now and then, use the bathroom or whatever. But I would oh, I would, I would be in there like 80 or 90% of the time. So if I ran away from him the first time last year, why didn't he come up to me when I came back in? Or why didn't he go after me when I ran away? fucking liar well anyway so um i finally get there i the second i walked off the plane every little molecule of anger i had vanished i just became so happy i was like oh my god i made it i'm here this is awesome i get the shuttle i get to the airport right when the show ends and i see um charlie and daniela first they saw me as I was walking out of the shuttle. And I was so hyper and happy. And then I went and saw you guys standing outside. It was you, TikTok man, Vincent, Tim, Tim Bream, and I believe that was it. Oh, and, uh, oh yeah, no, we won't mention the other person that was there. <laughs> you warned me there. <laughs> anyway, so, and then all these guys are completely sloshed and ready for bed. Wasn't cool. And, <laughs> So I, I, I had a hell of a time trying to sleep that night. And it wasn't just because of Ian snoring. I learned from Ian snoring. I bring uh, earplugs. But, um, you know, and, uh, but I, I, I hardly slept. I slept maybe two hours. And then we did the whole expo thing. But, uh, but since I wasn't at the show, pre-party show, I'll let Ian talk about that. Yeah, so uh, I got there. Uh, like Ralph said, everything went really smooth for having a connected flight. Got on a shuttle right away. Took me right there. And as soon as I walk in, who do I see but fucking Baco from Covering Fires. He's like, hey, come on, we're going to the bar. 
I was like, all right, let me put my shit in the room at least. And uh, nice hotel, man. I, I, I thought it was really, really nice. And how convenient that everything is there. Uh, the only thing I will say uh, uh, sucks for people who are, because I know people are going to be coming back next year. Most likely we're going to be back there. Uh, if you need to get food, you know, you know, it's kind of hard if you don't have wheels, not a lot of shit in walking distance like the previous years, but that, that's a minor complaint to all the pluses or a big, uh, or a big bank account. Yeah. Or a big bank. It was a pricey hotel, a pricey uh, restaurant, only one restaurant to eat there. I didn't see yeah. one vending machine in the whole place. You know, I, I don't know if I did or not, I know, did. but I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't looking. I, I'm not familiar with beer machines, so I wasn't even looking. Yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so I'm I'm sitting there, uh, you know, with Baco, a few other podcasters and stuff. We're sitting there having a good time drinking, and who comes up behind me? But Tim Bream taps me on the shoulder. I was like, oh shit! And then he moves to the side, goes surprise. There's Vincent Cavanaugh. Had no idea Vincent was coming. He wanted to keep it a surprise, and, and what an awesome, awesome surprise it was. I love that dude. Oh, yeah. I have oh, no yeah. problem it with was... him. I have no problem with him liking The Cure, just so you know. <laughs> I love you and Bushy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I have no problem um, with gay people. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was a real good time hanging out, seeing everybody. But uh, just as, man, as soon as you get there, it's time for shit to start happening. I went and saw Sinzak real quick while he was setting up. But from five to six, there was a, a little mix mixer, you know, where all, for all the podcasts, just everybody to say hi and stuff. And it was really cool, man. A lot of people uh, came up to me uh, who didn't the first two years. Well, some of them did, but, you know, more people. Everybody was friendly. There was no bullshit this whole trip uh, because all the asshole podcasts, all the ones who hate us and cry about us, none of them showed up because we weren't paying for them this year. Yeah. And so, so that, so that really helped. Uh, but I, seriously, I, I didn't hear any, any bit of problems with any podcasters or podcasts not getting along. Everybody was smiling, in a good mood, uh, until they went up to get a beer and and found out, you know, that they had to have a bank reference and all this shit to pay for it. Uh, that was a little disturbing. But still, again, a minor complaint. Now you know, kids, bring a cooler. Uh, but um, so that went on from five to six, and then had a little bit of a breather, run up to the room, uh, you know, put on my makeup, and head back down for the pre-show. All right, so uh, before I even go to the show, though, I got to go hang out with Bushy. So go hang out with Bushy, meet his new missus and, and, and his daughter, and... Uh, they just had a real good time, and he had a cooler. <laughs> so stayed there probably a little bit longer than it should have, but we were just slamming beers and getting in the mood. Went and checked out the bands, and, and you, you must forgive me, uh, I don't know the names of the first two bands. Lipstick, they were good, lip, lipstick Generation, something like that? I think so, and maybe 8-Ball. Was 8-Ball the other one or something I think like so, that? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought somebody had Coke, and when I found out they were just playing music, I walked out and had a smoke. But, uh, but they were all good, but you know, I got a good buzz on. So, you know, you got to go outside to smoke. I got to hit my douche flute when I'm drinking. Uh, but <laughs> I knew, I knew I, I didn't want to fucking, uh, miss rock and roll residency. 
So I go in there, and man, did this band not disappoint. Holy shit, were they good. And, and, I, and I missed a lot of good shit, too, because these sons of bitches, and I, and I gave them shit about it the next day at the expo. <laughs> they played not one, but two Sammy Hagar songs. Yikes. In fact, they started out. They started out with a Sammy Hagar song, <laughs> and as soon as it starts up, I was like, "Is this? Wait a minute!" And it's so funny, like you know, you know, there's a lot of people there, but you know, all the podcasters, everybody knows they. Everybody turns around and looks at me, and I just walk the fuck out. <laughs> I'm like, I ain't listening to this shit. I ain't listening to this. I'm going out. <laughs> so I went out, waited a little bit till I knew another song would be playing. Came back in, and these guys were just smoking man i mean a really good band a lot of guests came up and jammed with them like michael sweet uh tony hornell from tnt uh brian uh foresight from kicks jack gibson from exodus uh there was a, a guy from a local band and i i gotta find out this kid's name uh he came up and played beer drinkers and hellraisers with them and just blew my mind it was a really good show aside from those horrible sammy hagar songs but uh yeah i i i, I can kind of see where uh you know ace doesn't care if your wife just died he's gonna kick you out to get these guys because wow they, they 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 were stellar they were tight and other than the sammy songs they picked a really good mix of shit to play i heard some people complain that they lean too much on the 70s and not enough on 80s cock rock and i'm like well that's okay with me and i love 80s cock rock but i mean these guys were playing some awesome 70s rock and roll and that's fucking perfect for me i mean you know playing old fucking ted and fucking zz top and you know shit like that bunch of pickle whistlers complaining (laughs) yeah i know i'm like what are you guys complaining about this shit you know it's all about how it sounds like you should you should be like me complaining about the fucking sammy hagar shit uh, but it, it was a really good time, man. And, and the whole time I'm thinking, like, why does this beer cost so much? And when is Ralph going to get here? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I knew he was a little stressed. Uh, I didn't know as much like the first year. I didn't think Ralph was coming because I, I talked to him a lot more. And I could just hear it in his voice, you know. And I'm telling, you know, since I got like, I don't think he's fucking coming. You know, like, he's fucking pissed. But, uh so I didn't know about all the drama with an, another delay and then this guy talking shit. I didn't know that. But when he walked up, he had, you couldn't tell this guy had been in an airport for nine hours. Total positivity, all smiles, excited to be there. And uh, it's just a shame he missed, he missed the show. But this is something that uh, we wanted to stress to a lot of people. Because I know once all this shit comes out, man, and you've already seen the pictures, but when you... When you hear the audio and see the video coming up, this thing is going to be so much bigger next year because you you just know you're not going to want to miss it. What I would advise, if you can, if you can, I would really stress this, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to get there Thursday night, yeah. first of all, yep. just to make sure in case there is anything, you know, you still get there to enjoy all of it because – uh, there, there is like, it, it's weird. It's kind of a mixed crowd. There half the people come Thursday and leave Sunday. And then the other half comes Friday and leaves Monday, but we're going to, we're going to be there Thursday to Monday because I, you know, we'll get to it later, but some of the best shit happens 
and and it's always my favorite time really is after the expo but we, we got that there's so many stories between that but uh yeah i just want to say thank you to the rock and roll residency you know they were really and and the other bands they were really good and it really was a great way to kick off uh the expo and i was very excited about the attendance for the concert too because i was like huh i wonder how it's going to be because it was it's always different you know the the first two years because they were always at different venues and you know you got some people there don't have a car or you know not familiar with the area you know the way they got it set up now worked really well. Everybody's in the in the same spot, and uh, it, w- it was very good attendance, and and it just sounded awesome. And uh, and again, not one bit of fucking drama, which is is really refreshing. Uh, well, you know, I remember Ian uh, talking to you about the whole Ace Frehley thing, and I was I remember, man. I said, dude, seriously, bro, I saw that new band, and I understand why Ace went with these guys. Because they were like miles and miles better than his last lineup. They were so much better. And also, the uh, only pe- person to complain in that last lineup was uh, the drummer. The Richie Scarlett was kind of pissed in the beginning, but then he forgave him. And uh, the other guy, I-, I believe he's in Hollywood Vampires or something. I don't know. The bass player, who's a hell of a bass player, but he didn't give a fuck. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, who's yeah, who was the old one? Was it Chris Weiss? Yes. Yeah, Chris Weiss plays with everybody. Yeah, so it didn't. You know, really he, he, he's like, he's like, he's like a Matt Sorum. Every time there's a new band, he's in it. You know. And the guy, so he, the, the drummer, quote unquote, told Ace after when Ace told him, you know, he's no longer in the band. He goes, "How can you do that to me? I'm a fucking rock star." True story. The guy thinks he's me and shit. Yeah. Idiot. <laughs> All right, so by the end of the show, I got a pretty good buzz, and I had been up since like five o'clock in the morning. So, and I knew what you know the next day was going to be, so I was ready to go to bed. But uh, <laughs> Ralph and Brian Davis weren't having it because they just got there. <laughs> I actually went up to the room and I started. I just put on The Godfather to fall asleep to, and Ralph's like, "Come on, wake up, we're partying." <laughs> and Brian Davis even had it worse than me. Because he had, like, all these delays and a connecting flight. Oh, my God, poor dude. Can there be anybody cooler than Brian Davis? I think not. He's the nicest. He's the greatest. But, uh, but yeah, lo and behold, the next morning came, and uh, it was not without drama for me. <laughs> because my douche flute broke. And, oh, yeah. oh my God. I, I knew there was no way I could make it the whole day with no fucking nicotine. And I wasn't about to start smoking like, you know, man cigarettes again. Uh, but luckily there was Bushy to save the day. And he took us all out and we did drive around Tennessee a little bit. And we found uh, we found beer, food and smokes. So the, the day was saved. Yes, Bushy. Yes, Bush, Bushy came through. And, uh, you know, we get back, you know, and I actually wanted to get something to eat, too, because I, you know, I'd only had a couple beers. I was so like, damn, I didn't eat nothing yesterday. But it took so much time to find my douche flute. Uh, We didn't have time to go out for like a proper breakfast like we normally, you know, used to. But, you know, at the old hotel, we would just walk across a parking lot and there was a Shoney's. I mean, at this place, you could go down to the restaurant, but, you know, you better have your fucking American Express card. Yeah, which which I but, uh, actually I actually I gotta say, 
that night I was starving. So, and that place, that restaurant closed at 1.30. So, I went in there and I bought a burger and it was 20 bucks. But, it was a huge ass burger. I, I can only eat half of it. You know? So, then the next morning I went to, went to go eat the second half. You were so drunky and you didn't notice. But, you ate those. You ate my hamburger, bro. I remember, I remember eating in the middle of the night, but I, th- I thought it was trash. <laughs> I was like, "Hey, look, he didn't even finish it." Oh fuck, I'm yeah, hungry. <laughs> yeah, I guess Not you, bad. I guess you do that everywhere. You, you, I, did, I, you did it when you were down here for Judas Priest. I owe you ten bucks for that. <laughs> in, case, in case anybody missed that episode, after Judas Priest, I went to go get gas at a gas station, and right next to a pump was a bunch of food in one of those uh, plastic container things, styrofoam containers. And uh, Ian ate it. I, <laughs> I was like, "That is brutal death metal, bro." <laughs> that was, and and it wasn't the best neighborhood either, which made it even more <laughs> puke-inducing. <laughs> but they got the best restaurants. Was it good? I don't remember. I was so drunk. Yeah. Anyway, I think it was like chicken nuggets or some shit. No, <laughs> man, it was like it was like a sandwich with fries and. Rice, <laughs> it was a. I mean, whoever fuck that dude wasn't hungry. Like it was a, I just noticed a couple bites out of it, and then I'd see Ian biting into the bit area, and I was like, "Oh, oh, Lord Almighty!" So if the alcohol don't kill you, we'll know it'll be fucking food poisoning if you keep eating shit that's left in the road, you know. Yeah, but the alcohol balances it out. Oh, know? I did not know that. Kills all the germs. You're intelligent. You're like Mr. Wizard. <laughs> Kinda. Yeah. Kinda. All right. But uh, so uh, so the expo starts, and uh, but by the time we get down there, uh, Ralph's like, uh, I'm not having this. <laughs> it's too early. It's too early. I'll be down there in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Ralph Ralph wanted to lay down and take a nap. Yeah, I hardly uh, slept. I only slept like two hours. So me and Bushy went down there, and we got set up. And uh, you know, I I really liked the setup. The tables were nice. I liked the way everything, you know, the the spread was real good. Uh, just everything, everything was like just keeps improving from year to year. Uh, I was really impressed by that. And we set up, and you know, it opens up at ten o'clock. And I gotta say, it, it took till about ten thirty. And I was a little, you know, I was a little nervous at first because I'm just looking at how much bigger it is. I mean, we're, you know, we're at a real convention place now. Huge. <laughs> you, know, you know, so there's a lot of room. And I don't see a lot of people that aren't already involved with it one way or another. You know, so I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. But, man, by about 1030, people just started piling in. And, uh, man, it was just, it, what a great day. Um, our interviews didn't start for a couple of hours. So that had, you know, time for, uh, for me to get, you know, liquored up and, and get in the mood and the zone. And, and I got to thank, uh, Sonny Pooney <laughs> cause he brought a peace offering after all the shit that went down during the podcast tournaments. I saw him and I just like Hollywood. And he, he goes, look under your table. I was like, huh? He goes, look under your table. He goes, a peace offering. It was a fucking full 24 case of PBR. I was like, hell yeah. And that went good with the case of Yingling that I had with me too. 
Yeah. So I was I was not without beer. In case and, none uh, of you know, I know some of you know the whole Sonny Pooney drama. Um, after I saw he did that, I went and walked up to him. The funny thing is, the night before, he was sitting with a group of people, and I didn't know that was Sonny Pooney. And one of the people in the group called me, hey, Dr. Fuck, and I, you know, I didn't know who any of these people were. So I'm there shaking hand, and I shook, shook his hand. And then the other guy, the big Oasis fan that was at the same Noel Gallagher show as us. Yeah, yeah, Dave from yeah. Uh, Video uh, Digital Killed the Radio Star. Great guy. So we got yeah. to talk. But then the next day, uh, you told me, look, Sonny Pooney uh, brought me this piece off. And I, oh, where is he? You know, and then you pointed at him. I was like, oh, shit, I shook that guy's hand last night. I wonder I wonder what he was thinking last night going, uh-oh, dude, you just called Dr. Fuck over here. So I went over to Sonny Pooney and I to- and I can't say I apologized to him. I just I, I, I made a peace offering myself. I said, hey, right. hey, Sonny, man, let's just forget everything. Um, uh, and I explained, you know, look, I'm a hot headed Cuban. So I got pissed off. And uh, and but you know what, man, water all in the bridge. So I'm just going to tell our uh, our friends and listeners out there. That as far as I'm concerned, uh, Sonny Pooney's a good guy, and uh, we should stop, uh, you know, because I, I, I even remember recently there was a little Sonny Pooney talk on our on our board. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like to squash that, so let's let's all be cool with Sonny Pooney. And, and I also uh, went up and talked to the guys from uh, Podcast Rock City, too, and, and, you know, it's like, you know, and it got heated between us. Yeah. And the funny thing, we saw each other outside and we just looked at each other and smiled and went up and went up and shook hands and we shot the shit all day long. When I say there was zero drama, there was zero fucking drama. I mean, everybody was in a good mood, happy, smooth. It was it was really nice, man. Not one show, uh, you know, that I know anything about through any kind of fucking ego trip. You know, there's no Michael Butler bullshit. You know, nobody complaining about their tables. Everybody was happy. Everybody was in a good mood. And it was, it was awesome. It was a, a, so much fucking fun. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. And, uh, yeah, we all got, it was very harmonious. Is that a word, Ian? Harmonious? It is now. All right. It was harmonious. And, uh, yeah, and it was such a good vibe, too, in that room. You know, and uh, I really like that dude, Julian Gill. From Kiss Facts, a really yeah. nice dude. You know, he's o- he's always been very complimentary to me on uh, the Kiss Facts uh, uh, podcast. They got a podcast, and he always says nice things about me. He's a cool dude, so um, uh, got, got to see him again. I met him last year, but I bought his book, The Elder Book, and it's fucking awesome. Uh, even you'd like it, Ian, because it's really the inside story of everything that went down with the album. I you know? think. I think I have it. I think I okay. have it. Very, I, have, I have a, a digital copy of it. Very good read and very interesting read from, you know, the making of the door and all this shit. You know, it's or, no. I have, I have the one he did on the solo albums. That's right. Okay. I need to get the other one. I, I would read that because that's always my favorite part is when everything goes to shit and that's yeah. definitely a shit moment. So I would love that. Oh yeah, you hear you know all the the drama and all the bullshit that went through they went through with that album. So it's a very good read. Uh, it's called Odyssey, uh, you know, and uh, highly recommend it. And uh, you know, it's just a bu- Ken Mills. I love Ken Mills. I love the, oh, yeah. of course, the Decibel Geek guys. 
And uh, oh, uh, Josh Simi, uh, super cool dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk to me was right across from us, as was uh, uh, Cobras and Fires. Cobras Bushy and, was right next to us. Cobras and Fire. Like I never really spent time with those guys, and we spent a lot of time with them. Uh, yeah, you know, especially at Chris's house. What great guys! Yeah. What well, we hung, we hung out with Baco. We hung out with Baco last year, but uh, Loose Cannon didn't make it, and we talked to him. They, they told me, I don't even remember. I, I did their show the first year and was so drunk. I don't remember doing it. I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to check that out. I really but like yeah. the, I, I like those guys. But you know what? You know, I, I'm not going to like them much if they don't ask me to be on their show. <laughs> but uh, they were also in the room right next to us. Yes. You know, you know, and, and it was cool because everybody's in the hotel room. And like like we're just, like the, 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 the first day. I'm walking to go to Bushy's room. Who do I see walking down the hall but Aaron Camaro? And then here comes Dave Elson two minutes later. You know, it's like, wow, you know, this is the fucking place to be. It's right. nice when everybody's at the same, you know, spot. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, so it was going off without a hitch. And then uh, around 1220, we were supposed to do our first interview, uh, which is with the drummer and the guitar player from Wildside. And, and I know a lot of you have heard it, but there's a lot of other people who didn't check it out because, oh, I, I never heard of them or, or you prejudge them like we did. Uh, but what a great episode. We did it with Rock and Ron Runyon uh, from Decibel Geek fame. And we were so ex- we were disappointed because Rock and Ron wasn't there because we would have had him be part of it, of course. But uh, those guys, we didn't know, even know if they were coming. They were just late. So like, well, well, we got we got more time, uh, so I just kept drinking, and and Ralph was walking around checking out records and stuff. I'm always, I'm always a nervous Nelly. I don't want to leave the table because I don't want to leave you know all our shit. Uh, you're always a sm- I- you're a smelly Nelly too. <laughs> crocus, crocus reference. <laughs> but uh, um, so finally, finally around I think it was two twenty. We did our first actual interview, and God, no pressure, but the legendary Toby Wright. Uh, Toby Wright is is has produced and mixed so many fucking classic albums from fucking, you know, Slayer to Alice in Chains, uh, you know, to Kiss and you know, you know and, and, good, th- and good bands too. I think you should stop right there, Ian. And why don't we go into that interview? Let's do it. All right, here we have the producer extraordinaire. Mr. Toby Wright, how you doing, Toby? I'm doing excellent. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Uh, you have any questions, Toby? Because I do, Ian. Uh, I have a million questions, but probably uh, my, my first one would be, how did you get into producing and, and what drew you to it? Oh, wow. Um, that's, a, that's a long question or a long answer. Um, I got into production uh, by just wanting to be in the studio. And um, I, I worked my way through the maintenance department of fixing all the equipment. And, you know, I started Electric Lady Studios in New York. Oh, nice. um, so, and I happened, it was a happenstance that got me there. Um, so a friend of mine and I had an apartment together in New York. We were going to uh, NYU and the Institute of Audio Research. And um, we got all drunk one day and we had a bet. And the bet was who can get her job in the recording studio first? And so I started, I went and got two phone books because we didn't have cell phones or any of that stuff. And so I gave him a phone book, I took a phone book, 
I started at A, he started at Z. He ended up at the Power Station, which was a very amazing studio at the time, and I ended up at Electric Lady. We were both interns. I got $5 a day. He got $25 a day. What year is this? Uh, this was 84, or 85. So, or 80, yeah, something like that. <laughs> I don't remember the exact year, but 84, 5. Um, and so then uh, after that, you know, I had, I had heard rumblings and stuff. I wanted to be an assistant engineer, you know, very gung-ho. Um, and what happened then was the, uh, some people, one of the assistant engineers got in trouble. And the maintenance guy was really a hard ass. And um, I heard him yelling from the third floor of Electric Lady at this guy. So I decided right then and there that I didn't want to be that guy. And so I went, he asked me, like, you know, whose team do you want to be on? And, you know, because I could either go into the engineering side or I could have gone into the maintenance side. And so he chose for me and he said, I want you on my team. He goes, I think you got what it takes and whatever. And, uh, you know, if you know how to operate the gear, you'll definitely never run into a problem like that man just had. So I stayed on his team for about a year and a half and learned how to repair, you know, the Studers and the Neves and, you know, all the gear that we had at the time at Electric Lady. And uh, then I left there and went out to California and started building studios. Um, and, you know, just happenstance into, you know, uh, an engineer didn't show up one day at one of the studios and they asked me if I could engineer. I said, sure. It was a band called Brighton Rock uh, out of Toronto, Canada. And uh, after I did their demos that day, quick mix, you know, just a demo, so it was, everything was fast. Um, the manager at the time said, hey man, these are the best sounding demos I've ever had, had or heard in my life. I was like, oh, cool, okay. Well, no worries, you know, have a good time. Go shop the band and have, you know, get them a deal and so on and so forth. I didn't think anything about it until about two months later and they came back to me and said, Hey man, we got a deal with Warner Brothers. Would you produce the record? I'm like, all right. Well, here we go. And that started my production career. And then the second one was Alice in Chains and Jar of Flies. Wow. So. And what a great sound sounding record that is. Thank you. Know. you thank you. Um, is that the story of all producers? You all start from ground level, with uh, you know the behind the scenes, and it's just a little thing, and then you. Because uh, I've heard this story before of other producers are. You know, they start uh, mixing or doing something where they graduate to producer. Right. It's, you know, you have to start somewhere around the bottom floor right. uh, to learn the trade and to learn, you know, what what happens as, as you graduate. And what are those guys at the top doing? You know, if you start at the top, you don't have any skills. Right. You know what I mean? You're not going to open a company as the as the owner, general manager or whatever, you know, the CEO, if you don't know anything about the company. You know what I mean? So you're going to start on the bottom, you're going to be a restaurant guy, if it's In-N-Out Burger or whatever, you know what I mean? And you're going to climb your way up. So, yeah, I'd say absolutely that, you know, in some form or fashion that, you know, everybody starts down around the bottom-ish and works their way up. You it's, know? Like, it's like uh, being a deep fryer and then being the manager at McDonald's, right? That's exactly right. And then owning McDonald's. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> you had an, an illustrious career. I mean, your name is on some amazing records. What, what would be your most 
your your proudest achievement uh, of what you think you added to something with you know with the, with the way you either mixed it or produced it where you feel you added your personal touch and uh, you know you really love that your name is on that that would most likely be uh, Alice in Chains Unplugged oh um, great sound thank you that that is as far as sound goes I think that's one of my proudest achievements because you know, as a, as a chain goes, you record something, you mix it, and then it goes to mastering, right? And you never skip a professional mastering job because, you know, it, it, it will help your records out. But, you know, then when I turned this one into mastering, I always used the same guy at that time. Um, and I was in New York. I mixed this record. I thought, okay, that sounds all right. I sent the guy the tapes in California. I flew out there. I got there a little bit late for the session, and he says to me, man, I'm so sorry. I'm like, what's the matter? He goes, I can't make it any better. I'm like, uh-oh. My heart dropped, like, into my shoes. I'm like, what the hell? What do you mean you can't make it any better? He goes, I tried to take away bottom end, add top end, uh, you know, do all this stuff, compress it, do this, do that. He goes, it's fucking perfect. I'm like, what do you mean perfect? What does that mean? He goes, I just go to the back of the machine and look. Well, he had an analog two-track tape machine plugged in directly to what they called the 1630, which was the glass master CD master maker at that time. And so there was no anything in between, including EQ, compression, nothing. And no computers, no nothing, just hardwired directly in. And I said, are you sure you want to do that? He goes, how many records do I make a year? I said, about 360. He's like, yeah. So I know. I'm like, I said, well, that's why I hire you. So, okay. So I think that's one of my, definitely one of my proudest achievements that, you know, it didn't have to be mastered, so to speak. It came right off the desk. And what you hear uh, on the TV is the same exact thing as you hear on the DVD, which is the same as you hear on the CD. So there was no enhancement where they went back in and, you know, there was a, a note they had to redo, nothing like that. It was pure live. Yes. Yeah, the MTV Unplugged series is you can, you the rules are you get to um, do as many takes as you want of a song until you get the performance you're looking for. No overdubs are allowed whatsoever. So we couldn't fix vocals, we couldn't do anything. And that was, you know, Pro Tools was around, but in the Alice camp, it was forbidden. And it was all about playing and making music and capturing that those performances. Now that was, I mean, it's legendary for the, the drama behind the scenes, you know, in that era of the band. Did, did you find them easy to work with or were they hard to work with in the studio? Depends on your definition of easy and hard. Was it enjoyable or was it stressful, would you say? A little bit of both. A little bit I of mean, both. There, were, there, you know, there were days that were very enjoyable. There were days that were very stressful. Um, it just depended. And, you know, I spent so much time with those guys. I love them and I'll always love them. And no matter what we're ever doing. Um, and I think that, you know, most, all the joy from... All of that came from making the music. Right. You know, I don't. I'm not good with drama. I don't really dig it. Right. Um, but when there is drama, you know, I'm just a, I'm a problem solver. 
So I don't, I don't care about the problem. I care about the end result, which is solving the problem, right? And just moving on to the next, on to the next. Now, now were, they, were they a band that were, I mean, if you would give a critique or say we need another take of this, uh, did they believe in you or, or you know, would they like want to, like, no, I don't want to do that. I mean, did they have enough, I mean, obviously they have faith on you because they use you multiple times. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, I imagine some artists are easier to work with than others as far as taking your opinion and what you're saying. Needs oh, to be absolutely. Done. You know, they were, as far as that goes, they were a blessing and a joy to work with. Nice. Um, they would always, you know, if, if, if I didn't feel it was the one, um, they would, you know, always go, okay, cool, let's do another one. They trust your you know, That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, if I had to cut two together, that, that was always cool, too. Um, you know, it was just no digital. We don't want it. Until the very end, you know, when we were doing, uh, what was it, uh, just the last two songs um, that, you know, we had to bring, I had to bring in Pro Tools because there was arguments about um, arrangement and, you know, stuff like that. So it was just a lot easier to have it on Pro Tools and give the arrangement, you know, when Jerry came in to play, for instance, you know, he'd listen to the song, go, oh, yeah, okay, I can do that, or now nah, let's change this around, let's change that around, Lane and come in and go, no, I don't like that, let me change that around, let me change that around. And so the last couple of songs were, you know, kind of hodgepodge together, and it was a lot easier to do it with digital than it would be on analog, obviously. <laughs> uh, you also worked on a, 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 I mean, so many great albums in, in your catalog, but an infamous one you worked on is Carnival of Souls. You know, so oh, yeah. I mean, look at all you know the, the Kiss people here. I know. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> had to be, an in, because of all what was going on behind the scenes, that had to be a difficult album to record. And and a, a band like Kiss that is much longer in the tooth, they've been doing. Are they still receptive to your opinion, or was did you get a lot more push from from Gene and Paul? No, I think they were very receptive um, because they hired me to do, you know, a specific job and they wanted a specific outcome. Right. Um, and so, you know, they knew going in that we, you know, that they wanted to make a certain quote-unquote grunge record, right? Because, you know, that was kind of hot at the time and that's what they do, right? So <laughs> they, they hired me to do that um, because I was kind of hot in that genre at that time. Oh, yeah, you were. And so, you know, Bob Ezrin... Uh, wonderful, awesome producer and friend recommended me to Gene and Paul, and he had done the record before. And he said, you know, this guy's hot right now. He's a good guy, so on and so forth. And they interviewed me, and boom, I was in there. It was, you know, kind of crazy for me because they were, you know, some of my childhood heroes too. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, you, you were, you were a fan. Probably. Oh heck yeah! I've always been a fan. Okay. You know, and I didn't want to like you know, change up what they were doing, but they wanted a specific thing, right? And I couldn't go, hey, let's remake this record. Uh, they didn't, they weren't interested in that. Right. They were interested in, you know, Gene especially was interested in selling records, you know, uh, at that moment, right? And he, and he thought that by, you know, following the trend, so to speak, that that was the way to do it. Right. Well, ever the businessman. <laughs> ever the businessman is right. Toby, uh, looking from the outside, uh -huh. when it comes to Carnival of Souls, I mean, as a fan, I got the impression that Gene and Paul went into it, very much into it, but, like, there were reunion talks around the time. I think it came on a little bit after the recording. Uh, no, actually, right in the middle of it. Right in the middle. And yeah. did you notice, like, a little less enthusiasm or less 
input with uh, Gene and Paul when no. the reunion started? No, they, not really. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we had, we had this, you know, nice core team, Eric and Bruce and Gene and Paul and I, and it was, you know, to my best recollection, it was, you know, when when we heard about that phone call that Gene got that offered him all the money to go, you know, put it all back together originally and so on and so forth and get his butt out there and, tr- and play, you know, it was kind of, it was a letdown for all of us because we were so into what we were doing. But we decided at that point in time and in that control room in that moment that the, the right thing to do was to finish this record and the best we could. And, you know, and yeah, our spirits were a little deflated, but that's okay, you know, and because it, I think it brought out a bit more creativity in the end, you know, especially from, from uh, Bruce, you know, and he talks about it all the time. You know, I don't know if he'd admit that it brought out a little bit more creativity, but I, I actually think it did. You know, just I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta prove something. I gotta play my ass off. You know, and, and he did. He really brought it. You know, and I was proud of him. Well, I gotta tell you, it is an honor to meet you because I'm, I'm a guy. You know, when I get an album, I'm the liner note guy. You know, right, I right. always want to know who's doing stuff. And you know, seeing your name over the years, you know, and when I found out you, you know, unfortunately we didn't get to talk to you last year, but knowing you're gonna be back here again. We couldn't wait to talk to you. Uh, it, it truly is an honor, you know. And I'm going through because there's a lot I knew that you did, and there's some I didn't know that you did. And, That's right. And, and, you oh, here's the now frontier. Great, great sounding record. Right, right. Thank great you. Great sounding record. Well received, but him and I are huge fans of that album. Right. Yeah, I think that was it was a fun record to make because I love the band. I love Peter Collins, the producer, and I think it was just, you know, it was a little departure for me because I just engineered and mixed it. Um, but at the time, it was like, yeah, heck yeah, I'll do that. I love Peter. I'd love to help. I love the band, you know, and I know I love Seattle. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you, though, I, I did see one on there that uh, you have a mixing credit for. And that's Sammy Hagar's Red Voodoo. Oh, yeah. Um, if, you ever, if you ever mix him again, can you just hit mute and go do a David Lee Roth record? Oh, I would no, love to hear you no. do a David Lee Roth record. I would like to do a David Lee Roth record, I, I too. I would love to hear I, what you did with David but Lee Roth. But I can't do it. I can't ever mute Sammy. Oh, come Sammy's on. one of my heroes, that oh, boy. Oh. oh, you're killing me. Oh, but you're no, take, it, take him apart from what he is. Like, yeah. or, or for what he is, not... Not the Van Halen part, yeah. just as Sammy Hagar himself. He's yeah. an awesome man. Yeah, and I'd love to work with him again, you know, but I'd also love to work with, with David. I don't know if he's uh, still doing stuff, but, yeah, well, you know. I, 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 would, I would love to hear your work with Van Halen. You know, that's something that came up, you know, when they did the last end with David Lee Roth. A lot of people complained about the production of that album. Right. And that they didn't get the right, you know, that classic Ted Templeman sound. Right, right. And uh, That's hard to get without Ted. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Who are, who are some other producers that you look up to? You know, that, that you know, oh, really God. Ted for sure. Uh, Ron Nevison. Ron Nevison. He's, yeah. he's one of my heroes and, and one of my mentors. Nice. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget, I did seven or eight records with him. Um, and, you know, Hart. What else did we do? Patty Smythe record. We did like a whole bunch of stuff together. Um, and it was just, you know, he's, he's one that has a real depth of knowledge even though he doesn't play instruments he's got an amazing depth of knowledge in the production and he just you know to me he was an amazingly nice guy he's not known as that but he is you know but especially you know just having a rapport with the man and making music with him it was a good time awesome well 
Sir, it was an honor to talk to you. Thank and, you. And, and prove not all producers are Phil Spector. You know, this man never killed yeah. anybody. This is a good guy right here. <laughs> and he uh, held the mic the whole time. Yeah, yeah. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. So I'm going to send it to him. He's going to mix it for us. So there, there you go. There you go. Yeah, he's going to make me sound thin, right? You could do that with Pro Tools, yeah, right? Yeah, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wright, it is an honor and a privilege. And if you come back next year, we would love to talk to you again. Of course, I, I so will be around. Talk you can take that. And thank you for holding the mic. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> What a great fucking dude, huh, Ian? Oh, he he was so nice, and uh, we put him in the middle of us. We're, we're using Rouse Zoom to record, and, uh, man, he knew exactly where to hold it and where to put it. You know, we even made jokes like, hey, we're going to send it to you to mix this shit. Uh, yeah. but I, I really like the smile on his face when my first question is like, you know, there's so many damn Kiss podcasts there. You know he's going to talk Carnival Souls to death. So I'm like, well, let, you know, let's make it interesting for him. So, you know, my as you guys just heard, my first question was, you know, how did you get into it? And he just got like this huge smile on his face, like, holy shit, somebody's actually asking about me and not about Kiss. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, he was so nice. Oh, my God, and, me. <laughs> and when uh, when the interview was over, he, he gave us both uh, his card yeah. and, 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 and said he would be willing to come back on. And on the show and talk to us, man. And I mean, he just what a gentleman. I mean, he was really, really cool. And I, I think we were on our best behavior. And uh, but he, he was cool. He ran with everything we did. And uh, and uh, I guess we made a decent impression, you know. So uh, look, look forward to hopefully in the future, Toby Wright returning for an episode. Yeah, he uh, he, he mentioned it. I, I don't know if I kept that in there. I probably did. Uh, him saying, yeah, he'd love to do a show with us. I mean, basically, that's why he gave us his card. Right. So oh. so then um, it was uh, uh, Brian Damage from Kicks, right? That's his name, Brian Damage. Right. And I, I really don't know much about Kicks. So, but the great Brian Davis from Damn Good Movie Memories is a fan of Kicks. So I said, you know what? Why don't we have Brian... And you, because you're also a fagula that likes them. And have both of you interview him. And I listened to it, Ian, and it was a damn fine interview. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I, I got to give, uh, you know, you know, props to Brian, because Brian had a lot of great questions. But we kind of ran with that idea, because earlier we were trying to figure out, you know, since, uh, you know, we're looking at the schedule, and, and, and since, you know, we didn't land a Michael Sweet one, and Ralph didn't want to do it with me anyway... He, he says, I'm going to go do something with Bushy. And then I'm like, well, hey, around that time, uh, you know, we got to do Erie Vaughn. And then, uh, you know, I just came up with this idea. And then Tim Bream's freaking out. We're going to talk to Jason Beeler. That's when I was like, look, let's just split all this shit up. And all these people who, who you know, travel across the country to see our fucking dumbasses, let's make them part of it. Not only are we the only show that has actual listeners on the show. We said, fuck it. You guys are all going to do interviews with yeah, us. Yeah, exactly, which was great. And yeah, and, and, and it, it was so, it was, it worked out so well, and everybody was so happy. But I'm like, I, you know, I want to say thank you to all the guys, you know, you know, uh, I did an interview with Vincent. I did an interview with, with, uh, uh, with Brian Davis. You know, you did one with Bushy. You did one with Tim Bream. You know, and, and just think, if you would have been there this year, maybe you could have interviewed somebody with us. Yeah, exactly. Know? And let me tell you something. If I would have been there for the Brian uh, from Kicks uh, interview, 
it wouldn't have been as good as what you're about to hear. So, I believe that. so let's go into the uh, Brian Damage interview there, Ian. All right. All right, now, what we're doing today, uh, we got a, a listener of our show, Brian Davis, is a huge Kicks fan, so we want to make him part, you know, instead of just being Murray Coast, you know, have, have one of you know, your bigger fans be part of the episode, and, you know, he's good enough to travel from uh, San Francisco to come see us, so uh, very honored to, to have you on the show. It's right. in the name, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're sitting here with Brian Forsythe from Kicks, and um, what's going on with Kicks right now? Are you guys you got a new album or just touring right now? We are touring, but um, we put out uh, that uh, the Blow, Blow My Fuse remix. Right, like, right. Like about, I guess it's almost a year now. It's been out, but um, we're sort of riding on that right now. Right. I mean, we just got done doing like. Um, we were doing the, the album in its entirety for a while there, live. Nice, and that the remix was done by Bo Hill? Yeah, uh-huh. Nice. Nice. And uh, like right now, it's pretty much the classic lineup, but without the, the original bass player. Right. Uh, who was like the primary songwriter in the early days. So going out with you guys, but without having him, do you, do you think that, like, that, that brought you guys closer together? Like not having that, you know... The, you know the normal rock there that writes the songs that got it make you bring you tighter as a band not happening yeah maybe uh, yeah because I think you know the reason he's he wasn't included in the in the the reunion of the band uh, like you know he was the main songwriter he was the leader of the band but he was also kind of a uh, I don't know what you would call it it was the the, the friction. <laughs> the ringleader, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's like when we decided to do this again, it was kind of a mutual decision to not include him because we just wanted to go out and have some fun with it. No pressure. Like, at the beginning, we weren't thinking even about doing new music back then. We were just going to go out and do a few shows and have fun. And um, But I think that's what it was. It was like... Um, yeah, it did, it did kind of bring us closer. And then, especially when it came time to do the new record, uh, which now it's like five years ago, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, we had to think on our own without Donnie there to write the songs. And it really, like, it, well, it kind of proved that we could get along without him, you know. Yeah, kind of showed you something, you know. Yeah. You didn't know you had it yourself. Yeah. Now, when that initially happened, uh, how, how was he about that? Is like, there's no way you're doing it without me, or was he kind of like, ah, I'm, I'm over it too? Was, was it a tense situation, or just kind of happened? Yeah, it just we just kind of did it, and then uh, you know we we're, we weren't really in communication with him. So um, since since we've been back together, I've heard from other people that know him, you know that he's he just doesn't even want to talk about it. <laughs> But, you know, the sad thing was, you know, I talked to Donnie about probably six months before Steve got a hold of me to, to put the band back together. And, and, uh, and we talked for like an hour and we talked about old times and it was great. And Donnie's like the nicest guy if you're not working with him. Like if you're just hanging out and just having fun, but yeah, he's great. Yeah, but when, it, when you put it into a work situation, it's just like, ugh, it's like Dr. Uh, 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, it's just not. Or it's more like the 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 crazy dad that goes out and gets drunk and comes home and beats the kids or something. It's just. <laughs> and, uh, what's the vibe now? I mean, I mean, you guys, you know, primarily are, are touring. Uh, you know, is, is, it, is it still fun? You know, is it, I mean. Oh yeah. You know. And it's yeah, we're busy as busy as ever right now. Right. I mean, this weekend we're off, which is rare. <laughs> right. That's why but I'm doing this. Enjoy it maybe a little bit more now because it's more like, you know, there's there's no, you know, it's not like a record label breathing down and you got to do this. It's like you go do the shows that, that you schedule and play the music you want to play. Yeah, and, and well, the, another big difference is it's, um, you know, they're fly dates. So we go out on the weekend, we'll play one or two shows and then fly home. So it's like during the week I'm home. It's and and yeah, there's no pressure. Like when I'm home, I'm just I, I don't have to go to rehearsal or do this or do that. Like back in the old days, it was just like when we weren't on the road, we were in the rehearsal room and it was like no time limit. Like we were there all day, all night. It was like <laughs> we were slaves. <laughs> I got, I got plenty of questions. Yeah, so. he's got a lot of questions. <laughs> well, one, uh, are you guys thinking about recording a new album anytime soon with Kicks? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we've talked about it, and it, it'll happen at some point, but I don't know when. And as for unreleased material, is there anything unreleased that you guys could release, or is that all through Donnie still? Yeah, stuff from the old days, it's all pretty much Donnie. There were a couple odds and ends around on demos that Steve wrote, but I've, he's already used those for Funny Money Records. So, I mean, when we put this last Kicks record together, we had, I'm trying to remember how many. I think we had like 23 songs and we picked 12 out of the 23. So there's still a few of those laying around, but We'll probably just write new stuff, okay. and and if we have to fall back on some of the old stuff, we will. Yeah. 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 So you guys remixed "Blow My Fuse," and to me, you guys did it the right way because you didn't screw around with the original masters or anything like that. Did it come out how you expected and how you really wanted it to turn out? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't think we had any expectations on how we wanted it to turn out. We just sort of handed it to Bo Hill and said, "Here, just see what." what you come up with right. and he he just you know, I don't know if you heard me say but he didn't listen to the original recording he right. just took the the master tapes and just did his own thing right. and uh yeah we're we're happy with it so really it's like listening to a whole new album at least for me because there's little little things they put in that were on those master tapes that either brought stuff down and then boosted stuff up and it, it right. sounds amazing yeah like hidden guitar licks exactly. that yeah like stuff that I forgot. I was like, oh, that's right. I played that. Right. <laughs> so your other band, Rhino Bucket, uh, it's kind of on a hiatus right now. Are you still in contact with George? And do you think you ever get back together and do stuff? Yeah, I st I'm still in contact. And I'm still, him uh, between me and uh, Dave, the drummer, we're still poking George, saying, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> so I, I think... Which is one of their songs, by the way. Hey there. Yeah. But I think George... I think he just needed a break. He, he got a full-time job, and he has health insurance and a 401k right now. So he's trying to keep that going. I think he's going to get bored and want to do it again. So I told him the door's open if anytime you're ready. 
So, so we're going to get personal here. If people don't know, where, where does the, the nickname come from, Damage? Bo Hill. Bo Hill's the one that coined it. <laughs> really? I mean, there's been other Brian Damages along the way, but while we were doing um, uh, – sorry, I blanked. Midnight Dynamite. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I guess I really do need lunch. Um, yeah, when we were doing Midnight Dynamite – uh, I would show up at the studio like we'd, we'd get done recording during the day and then we'd all go out like to some bar somewhere get hammered and then the next day I'd show up at the studio all hung over and I remember one day I was th- there was a couch in front of the console the mixing console and I was just laying on that couch just moaning and, and Bo used to call me Brain just because it's Brian. With, I get it all the time too. So he'd always go, brain. And so that day he goes, brain damage. And he goes, that should be your name. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. And then from there on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes a hell of a T-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> so you're a big Stones guy. Well, what's, your, what's your favorite Stones era and, and what's your favorite Stone, Stone albums? Wow. Well, my favorite era is from... <clears throat> probably 69 through Mick Taylor <laughs> well yeah but I liked it before Mick Taylor like uh, Beggar's Banquet yeah. yeah I think is I think that that album is when the Stones found their sound that like before that it looked it, to me they were searching especially in the Brian Jones days because I mean Brian Jones was great and all but I think he tried to throw too much stuff into it like that trying to, sink on, you know, yeah, sitar here and that. Yeah, and I don't think it was working. And when finally, when he was out of the picture, and they did Beggar's Banquet, well, I think he was still in the picture, but low, like laying in the corner at that right. point. <clears throat> um, but that was when they discovered what the Stones really were. Was that record? So wait, when you revisit the Stones, what what do you go to now? Like, what do you go back to the stuff you you not burn out on, or is it tried and true stuff? Nah. <laughs> yeah, any one of those records. Let it bleed. Uh, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, uh, Exile on Main Street. Even, uh, well, it's only rock and roll. Black and Blue even has some crazy stuff on it. Yeah. I'll get back to the main All right. Well, you know, Kicks has so many awesome, you know, classic songs, but, you know, there is the one song, you know. Um, and some bands see it as like a, a blessing and a curse. I mean, when it's all said and done, you don't close your eyes. You know, is, is a one, like even people who don't know Kicks know that song. Right. Um, is that song, is it still enjoyable for you to play? Do you still like it, or is it like an obligation? You know, it is an obligation. It is an obligation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, I mean, we can't not play that. Right, but it's one of those like. You know, uh, first time it gets brought to the band. I mean, did you feel it? Did you not feel it? Oh, back when when it was when Donnie first wrote. Right. No, no. I I mean, yeah, I thought it was a good song. Right. But then it just blows up. So you know. Yeah. Well, it was funny because the first couple records we didn't have a ballad. I guess the first slow song was um, "Walking Away." Right. Um, and I guess that sort of broke the ice, and then Donnie decided to put one on each record after that. But um, 
I mean, I'm sure you've, you've heard the story that, that they weren't going to release that Don't Close Your Eyes. Oh, that no, I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, we were, um, we were out on the Great White Tesla tour. <clears throat> Sorry. I got... <clears throat> I swallowed and breathed at the same time. I got a piss worm PBR under there. You're thirsty. Well, I actually have some water. Okay. <laughs> but we were out on this tour, and, uh, and it was right at the. It was in '89, and uh, I remember Atlantic informed us that, that after that tour, that, that they were cutting off the the tour tour um, support Funny, and yeah. all that stuff, and it was time to start thinking about a new record, and. Um, and Alan Niven was a uh, great ma White's manager at the time. And he was also Guns N' Roses manager, right. so he was huge. And I remember uh, he went to our, our manager after one of our shows, and he goes, he goes, that song, he goes, how come that's not a single? <clears throat> me. And um, our manager explained it to him. And they go, well, you know, Atlantic says the record's done, and that they're not doing anything else. <clears throat> So Alan Niven goes, uh, he goes, well, he goes, they're crazy to not put that out. He goes, you mind if I talk to him? And our manager goes, sure, go ahead. So Alan Niven went to, to Atlantic and said, you're, you'd, be, you'd be stupid to not put that song out. And he says, you're sitting on a gold mine. And they listened to him. So they put it out and like, <clears throat> we thought we were done touring at that point. And all of a sudden they put that record out and it was like a whole nother like, year, year and a half. On that, on that single. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it is. I mean, it is, it's one of those things you will always be. Know, that song will always be played on radio and stuff. And I still can't believe how big it got. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember being in the middle of nowhere hearing it on the radio, and it's like, wow. <laughs> but, but I mean, I mean, it, it's it's nice that that you have a song that that it touched so many people and. People interpret it different ways, and yes, uh, you know, I, I see it as one thing. Like, you know, there's probably so many other songs that you're more proud of and you wish people knew. But to have that one, you know, there's a lot of a lot of bands here that never had that That's song. True. So, well, I still think it's a great song. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's not right, a good right, song, but right. uh, but we've played it every single night since since oh yeah since the record. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I imagine it's one of those. It's a little bit different when you're obligated than, than where like, oh yeah, you know what, I want to play this one. We ain't done this in a while. I imagine, you know, at, at this stage, you know, you get more satisfaction from that. Like, I'm gonna pull, let, let's pull this one out, you know, and it keeps it fresh for you guys. Yeah, that's true. You but know. you have to have the staple ones in there, like oh, yeah. that and Cold Blood and Roma oh, Hughes. Yeah. Oh, Cold Blood, love them. <laughs> so, what song did you think was gonna be a hit that never, never would, never was a hit? Uh, well, uh, Tear Down the Walls. Yeah, we, I was, we were hoping. Yeah. In fact, we were in the middle of doing a video for that song, and they pulled the plug. I said, nah, that's it. So we scrapped it. In fact, there's a copy of Tear Down the Walls video with the time, the time stamp yeah. going, going across, because we never finished it. Oh, wow. I mean, because I remember, you know, after after Blow My Fuse yeah. did so great, I mean, because that's really, when I first discovered you, was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Cold Blood, yeah. you know. Uh, you know, and, and then of course, of course the ballad hit. Yeah. But man, when you guys came back out with the next album, and I heard "Girl Money," yeah. I was like, "That's these guys are gonna blow it." I, I love that song so much, and I was like, "God, that's just a good rock and tune," you know. Oh, yeah. and, I, and I really, and I don't, you know, 
unfortunately it didn't have the same success as Blow My Fuse, but I thought that was a good record. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I thought that was a great single. Same Jane, great song. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. You know, once we did, got through the whole Blow My Fuse and we did Hotwire, I thought that was even a better record, and I thought, wow, this is it. Yeah, We're right. finally going to get there. Right. But then the grunge thing happened. Yeah. And it just pulled the rug out from under us. So yeah. if Hotwire came out when Blow My Fuse came out, yeah, if it was back in, yeah. Well, you never know, though. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, timing is everything. <laughs> so how do you feel about the Body Talk era? Was that, did you know when you were doing that that it was going to be so different than what the, the debut was like? Or was that a direction you wanted to go into? That second record? The second maybe? record, yeah. No, we were kind of pushed that cool way. Cool Kids, Cool Kids. Yeah, yeah. the record company... They let us go on the first record and yeah. just do what we do, and then the second record they were pushing for singles, yeah. and that's why we ended up doing three cover songs. Right. And it didn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the stupid thing about the timing: we got we got done with that record, we we're in the final mixes, and our A and R guy shows up. We we're, were down in Miami recording. He shows up at the studio with a cassette of Pyromania. It wasn't out yet. Okay. <laughs> he goes, oh, you got to hear this. The next Def Leppard. And it's this big rock record. And we're listening to this little pop record that we just did. And we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, well, we could have done that. Yeah. That's really what we wanted to do. <laughs> right, well, I mean, that's, you know, of course, I discovered you with, you know, Blow My Fuse. And then I went back. Yeah. And I was really like, wow, you know, it's different. Big, big difference. Yeah. Big difference. But, man, when you guys, in my opinion, when you hit hit and it's just a good rock and roll band you know, and I think that's you know it's like I, I, I think that's a peel of kicks you know it's not you know it, it, it's not you know metal I mean it's hard rock but it's just good rock and it's an honest rock and roll yeah. blue collar rock and roll yeah. and you know it comes through in the playing and the singing and uh, nobody's like Steve yeah. Steve's yeah, a, a great yeah, front man yeah. a great front man but uh, I really hope to get a chance to see you. I hope you come to New Orleans I'm in New Orleans so yeah. okay. I would love to see you guys play show in New Orleans well, we play uh, Biloxi occasionally oh yeah but the hard yeah, the, the casinos and stuff around there. Uh, I'd love to catch one of those. Well, man, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. And yeah, yeah, very, very nice. It's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. And uh, thank you, Brian. Look forward to uh, any, any tour dates coming up. Anything you would uh, like to promote? Well, we're constantly touring. Next week we're uh, in Iowa at the Iowa State Fair. All right. The week after we're at the Kentucky State Fair with Vince Neal. Nice. The weekend after that, we're at the Shenandoah County Fair. <laughs> do you have Do you have a, a website? Uh, yeah. Where go get the yeah, it's uh, kickspan.com. Kickspan.com. And there's a Facebook page. There's, right. I mean, it's all linked. All right. Linked. Thank you so much, brother. It's an honor to talk to you, man. Yeah. And, uh, have a good day, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, there you go. Brian, uh, Brian Damage from Kicks with uh, the great Brian Davis. And they're not so great either. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, not only was Brian Forsythe a really nice guy, but uh, you know, Ralph brought up something you know really important. That interview really would have suffered without Brian Davis because I am a very very casual uh, kicks fan. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever even you know, uh, I, I I I did have Hotwire, I, I believe, uh, but he knew so much about him. Uh, 
you know, and really helped the interview flow in areas where, okay, I had a couple good questions, but, you know, he had those deep ones that just kept it flowing and going. And so thank you, Brian. And thank you, Brian Forsythe, for, you know, giving us that, that interview because it was a lot of fun. Super nice guy. Yeah, I, nice guy. I didn't even know he was in Rhino Bucket. I was like, fuck, man. Brian knows his shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So so where did we go from there? What was the next episode? Would that be uh, you and uh, and Tim Bream with Jason yes. Beeler? Yes. Uh, what happened was... Um... Uh, Ian doesn't know it's the same scenario. Ian doesn't know much about Saigon kick or none of that. Now, honestly, I'm a big fan of the lizard. I've heard the other ones, eh, you know, whatever, but the lizard, I love, I love that fucking album. So that was good enough for me. But Tim Bream, wow. Does he know all his side projects and even the recent thing, the guy's doing on Bandcamp? He knows everything about the dude. So, and Tim Bream was very nervous. Uh, before the interview, like, oh, man, uh, uh, I was like, dude, just relax. Don't, you know, don't let it get dude. Tim Bream handle it like a pro, uh, as you're about to hear. I mean, he asked the questions. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of the lifting, I admit, you know, because Tim, you know, uh, I guess was nervous. But when it was time for him to talk, he did not, you know, hold back at all. So, uh, you know, and, and, and Tim had previously met him uh, earlier in the day. And and this Jason Beeler must be a really nice guy because Tim Bream had like nine CD, like the booklets. And this guy signed them all. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when I first said that thing to Tim about like, hey, Tim, you want to do this episode? I That was my favorite part of the whole expo because the look on this guy's face, I thought he was going to cry. Yeah. You know, because. Tim wasn't, I mean, this is personal stuff, but Tim wasn't having a great weekend. And, you know, he was trying to make the best of it. And this just gave him some joy and put a smile on his face. And it really made this guy's weekend. And that made me so, so fucking happy. Me too. So fucking happy. Tim's a good guy. And after the interview was done, he even said, dude, that, that alone was worth the trip. Oh, my God. He was like gushing that he was part of it and it made me very happy, you know, and I, I didn't know, you know, what was going on in Tim's, you know, and nobody should know, you know, it's something we're not going to talk about, but you know, the guys hasn't had it easy. So, uh, you know, when I found out later, it made me even feel better to know that we did this for him. You know, it's like, uh, we really made his trip and, uh, the guy deserves it as much as a little problem me and him had in the past. You know, there was a big, you know, and I'm mad enough to admit it like a man. Um, I was in the wrong uh, when it came to Tim Bream a lot. I mean, he was in the wrong some spots, too. I'm not taking all the blame of our little beef together. But, uh, you know me, man, I get a little too hot-headed. And now that I got to know him well, he's a really, really good guy, you know. And uh, and it's a joy to have him be part of the the Nashville pack. You know, yeah. it's good good to have him around. I like having him around. He's got a good vibe. He's a good dude. And uh, I got nothing but good things to say about Tim Bream. And uh, fuck the past. Right, Ian? That's right. And and just proof that dreams do come true if you make it to the Rock and Pot Expo. It's really cool to hang out with us. <laughs> you never know what's going to fucking happen. Exactly. You know? I mean, it's getting so big. Maybe next year we'll have Greg Barnes interview Elton John. Yeah, you never know. You, you never, never know. know. 
So uh, here's the interview that I did with Tim Bream, uh, with Jason Beeler from Ex Saigon Kick, and he's doing a lot of other stuff. Check it out. It's a really good interview. It's fucking awesome. Check out how Tim holds his own. All right, now we have Mr. Jason. We're doing like dueling podcast here. Yes, we are. We got Mr. Jason Beeler. How are you doing today? Couldn't be any better, man. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing great. You know, you and I are from the same neck of the woods. So much so that I saw a toy soldier. Wow, that would have been at a high school? It was in a high school. I believe it was a Battle of the Bands. It could have been. Is that in Coral Gables somewhere? Yes, it was. And Derek Cintron, who's a brilliant drummer, yes. if I remember correctly, was playing drums. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you thought I was too old to remember anything. So, um, what, what, what inspired you to start playing the guitar? Was there an album, a musician? That just... I think it was just music. I mean, I think when you're young and something, you know, kind of touches you or makes sense to you and, you know, other people in your neighborhood maybe are better at sports or better at this and you find something that you just understand or you feel like you can do. Um, and then I, you know, I kept, you know, the more I loved it, the better I got at it, the better I got at it. You know, people were like, wow, you're getting good at it, you know, and it just kept the cycle going. And um, I don't know so much that it was like one. I mean, there's, there's pivotal moments along the way where I just remember being like blown away. Like I went and saw Ozzy Osbourne at Sundance Musical Theater. I was there with Death Oz. Yep. So that was the first real rock concert I probably saw. And seeing Randy Rose, I mean, I, I was I remember that being life changing, like just, OK, this is, you know, this is definitely something. And then hearing different stuff, like hearing Gary Moore. Uh, end of the world, specifically. I remember hearing that on the radio on some kind of show or specialty metal show. Was it WSHU? It wasn't. I didn't hear it in Florida. I was actually in New York oh, at the time. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, but like, so hearing like, like like that, and then just you know, the importance of music just to me is like you know, I, I just it's just been this thing throughout my whole life that I just I love. Exactly. Tim, you're, he is a very huge Saigon Kick fan. Yes, sir. Do you have any questions for him? Um, yeah, I'd like to know, um, Jason. Um, on certain albums, I've I've heard that you play different instruments, mm -hmm. and it's come to my attention that you actually played bass on "On and On" on Water. Is that correct? On "On and On," yeah, that's me playing bass, and I think Chris McLernan actually playing rhythm guitar. Yep. And that's really recorded for the most part live as we were writing it. So, um, and it just came out. The energy of it was kind of cool, so we didn't go back and screw it up by. We do each other's part. You on the record. Plays me on the record. Awesome. So, um, the lizard. Uh, it's an album that I, I absolutely adore. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think it's just an amazing album, and it did cause quite a buzz in the beginning, and then you got a big hit, obviously. The, the ballad. Do you think that was a double-edged sword? I mean, yeah. I mean, but it's no different. If anybody who knows the band, it's the same context that the first record had a ballad, had this, had that, had a lot of diversity in it. But, you know, at the time, I think music was changing. Atlantic wasn't really a grunge label yet, so we were kind of marketed one way, and then, you know, the... You, um, but look, I mean, anytime you write or have a song that becomes big and touches a lot of people for whatever reason, I feel really dumb to sit here and apologize and be like, you know, oh, it's kind of... You know, because it, it doesn't mean it would have worked out differently otherwise. You know, there's no guarantee otherwise that things would have worked out and that's the record we made and uh yeah so i mean it's all good to me 
But you know what I mean? When, when people, like, they don't really investigate. Like, if they would hear, like, something like body bags. Right, right. They would, they, they won't, you know, because that, that's the problem with, uh, you know, the, for lack of a better term, Powerball, which it wasn't, but that's how they marketed it. And uh, do you think that, you know, after they did that, uh, the record company wouldn't push for something more different? I think we were just always a pretty diverse band. I don't think Atlantic really understood what we were. Um, and not disrespectfully, I mean, I just don't think they knew what to do. Um, and this, so this is before grunge really happened. Um, we were touring with, you know, like the Ramones. We were touring with Cheap Trick. We were touring with anybody, like, just stuff we dug. So we were blissfully ignorant to, like, let's just do 10 heavy songs or let's do 10 punk-based songs. or We just did what we wanted to do musically. And I think for the same reason it hurt us at the time is the reason why those records have kind of taken on a life of their own later. Like, I still hear really nice things. Corey Taylor from Slipknot, Chris Kale from Five Finger Death Punch, um, Devin Townsend. You know, people that I wouldn't have, like, even realized were aware of those records. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of got what the band was really about. And, and, and so, you know, I think had they been all just one thing, they might have been more successful immediately, but we would have just been another one of those bands. I always think the musicians get it. You know, you're a musician's band. You know, the, the eclectic mix. King's X, Extreme, I think, suffered the same uh, kind of more than words was definitely like what most people associate with that band. But there was a lot more to them. Uh, yeah, but, but, you know, to me, like the Lizard, like, I felt was like the perfect album for that time because how his music was changing, there was something different about that album. I feel because it was kind of like a wide scope. Yeah, I think it would have blended well, and I think if it was marketed differently. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've always been a person. You know, I write songs. I write all the time. Uh, I create what I want to create, for better or for worse. Um, and I just can't live in a world, for me, I'm saying, I understand what other people do, but to me it's like, you know, I just released stuff this week. I don't worry about, you know, is it nice when a lot of people like it? Absolutely. But it's like, I never created from the standpoint of, oh, it's not a hit now, so I'm not doing what I do. I've always pretty consistently, you know, even working with other bands um, that I've had the you know, pleasure of working with, Nonpoint yeah, or Skindred or... Okay. Um, I got a question for that. With that non-point, the the single bullet with a name on it, dude, it sounds like you on that record. Are you doing any vocal work on that record? We worked on some of the hooks together. I don't think I sang on that. Man, that I'm aware of. It really does sound like you in parts of that. It, I can really oh, hear the Saigon you. Kick influence, and I hear the Lizard influence on that in that song. That's awesome. I mean, I think they're, they're, you know, like I said. I look at my life like I got to this point. I've worked with a ton of. I've, I've always been a musician. I've always worked with musicians. I've had a label. Been really lucky. It wasn't the biggest band in the world. Wasn't the smallest band in the world. I got nothing to complain about. So, so what, what, what's uh, this new thing that you have out now? I've been writing and releasing stuff uh, on a Bandcamp site. Just I had a label for a long, but really more for me, just as a kind of a writer experiment. Um, and it started off with, I just wanted to write and release a song in like 24 hours from start to finish. I didn't want to overmix it, overproduce it, just wanted to keep writing, writing, writing. So over the last few years I've released like 150 plus songs and it's grown into this really cool little, because there was no sense 
of trying to do anything with it. But it's grown into a really cool thing, and then I've been doing shows with Jeff Scott Soto around the country, and uh, I'm doing a new project with Jonathan Mover. That'll be coming up next year. And, uh, man, I'm just lucky to be playing with great musicians and still doing what I get to, you know, look, I don't have to go out and work on a lawn service. I mean, I, I, get, I get up and I make music. Life is good. Exactly. I got nothing to complain about. And, and what you were saying before makes a lot of sense. If you're going to sit down and I got a, a second thought, oh, I got to do something for the head, it's not going to succeed. No. You have to do it from the heart. Uh, hey, people love it. That's icing on the cake. Right? Yeah, it's great. I mean, don't get me wrong. I got a nice house from that ballad. So, I mean, I'm not complaining about it. You know, that's why I think it's like, you couldn't, but you couldn't, I couldn't have sat down and said, I am going to write a hit ballad. That was on the record in the same way that on the first record, Come Take Me Now was on the record, because that's what we wanted to do. And we wanted to really push the envelope and be, like the records that were important to me, the Beatles, you know, for their time. I mean, they they were doing anything that came to mind. It was, some of the stuff was heavy, some of it was super ballady, and that's, I don't like one dimension of music. I couldn't do it. Some people are great at it. I mean, I'm so respectful of like ACDC or Iron Maiden who, who know what they do, and they do it over, and you, when you order that, you know what you're getting. That's great. For me as a musician, you know, I want to, I want to interpret jazz my way. I want to hear ballads. I, you know, I want to hear Gojira. I want to hear Meshuggah. I want to hear, I want to, and mix it all up and do what I do. And you do it well. Um, I, but I get, you know, I, I haven't made it easy. But what was, what was the transition like when you took over vocals for you personally? I had always, I demoed all those songs out, even on the first record, and sang a lot of those harmonies and stuff. And we were kind of isolated in Sweden recording. So, and being young, I don't think we really thought about it. You know, it was just kind of like, all right, we're going to do the record. He's gone. That sucks. But, hey, I already know all the parts, and I wrote most of the material, and uh, so we just did the record. Easy for you. Blissfully ignorant to the ramifications of losing your front man. You know, I mean, I, I respect what Matt brought to the table. Um, I think when you're a band and you're sitting in a, a studio, those were true representations of the musical thought we were having at the time. You know, we weren't really thinking about is this going to work? Is it not going to work? You know, and the cool thing about those records. There's a super passionate base of people who love the first two records, um, and I get it. Um, and and there's a super passionate base of people who love the the latter records, you know, the Water record, and, the, and uh, those records have gone on, and a lot of people like them. So, you know, at the end of the day, you try to do as much good stuff as you can, like your podcast. You just do as much good as you can. I can't control where it all winds up or how it gets rated. That's somebody else's job. Just to touch upon the Beatles, let's talk about the Beatles for a minute. Sure. If you don't mind. There's a lot of people that, oh, I either like the, the middle section, the early, the later. You know, I happen to love from Please Please Me all the way up. Abby Road, are, are you the same way? Did you like the whole catalog, or were you a fan of a certain era? No, I'm a fan of it all. I mean, I still, I even, even the last thing Paul McCartney released, I thought was brilliant. I love it. thought it was, I was like, this guy's making great records. I mean, there was a period of time where I thought some of his solo stuff was like, but the last record that was awesome, I, I awesome. Even the one before, um, I, I can't know the Egyptian one, but uh, new. Okay, did you, did you I, didn't, I didn't hear that one. Yeah, it, it's, 
But I think it's awesome. I mean, you know, like when, you know, even if you look back, the thing I've come to realize that I feel confident in saying is that greatness or success of anything is rarely an accident. Even if it's not something I don't like initially, like even now, like I'm for, for something I was doing, I had to learn a bunch of like prog rock stuff that I never paid attention to. Like it's not my thing. Like I never grew up in that stuff. I don't want to hear a 15-minute song. I don't, you know, it's just not my thing. But being forced to look at some of it, you go back and you're like, oh, King Crimson. There's a reason why they're great. You know, I mean, and even bringing up David Ellison or any of these guys, I mean, it's like you look at the careers of people over time and there's a reason why they're still doing it and there's a reason why it's cool. And obviously the Beatles don't have to make any statement the music did at all, but, you know, you can't touch that writing. And, and change the world. Yeah, it was the first to do it, and and I don't think anybody's done it better since. Exactly. Even a band like Queen, who I love, yes. But was like, when Queen was on, there was, you could argue that there's not a better band. But they also had songs where I was like, what is going on? Like, how did this wind up on that record? You know, in my opinion. No, no, I agree with you too. You know, I'm a big Queen fan, but then there's some. But like the hot space, I couldn't get. But the Beatles, you're talking four or five life-changing songs on everything they did in only like, seven years yeah any one of which you'd be thrilled to have a part of and say that's my whole career and they did it just time and time and time again and that's interesting just to go back to that like just also like as a as a kid relating to John Lennon or relating to Paul McCartney but then realizing how great George Harrison is as you get older like kind of you evolve as well as your perception of the music. And he got better and better. Like, yeah. you know, if you listen to something like something, that song. Man, so perfect. Yeah. Well, we're about to get drowned out here. Do you have any more? I'm good. I just want to say thanks for letting me be a part of this. Thank yeah, you yeah. for being here, man. Thanks for having me. He's a big fan, so I wanted him to be part of it. I appreciate it, guys, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Great interview, man. Oh, cool. Thanks. Well, there you go. Didn't, didn't Tim hold his own, Ian? I think so. You're such a fucking liar. You haven't heard the interview yet. I know, but I already know. I busted I know. you. I busted you. I'm such a prick. <laughs> but yeah, dude, he was great. He was... Uh, Tim Bream's awesome, dude, and he really did deliver. And uh, And I thank him, too. I mean, as much as he thanks me. You know, I thank him for, you know, because of his all his nervousness. He went he went along with it. He went he went with it. And uh, dude, I mean, you all just heard it. Did, did that sound like a nervous guy? Not at all. I mean, right, Ian? I don't know. I never heard it. That's right. How, how, <laughs> how, how, how was how was Beeler? Was he a cool dude? He was awesome. Really, really nice. I really did surprise him because. Uh, I saw Jason Beeler at a battle of bands when he had a band called Toy Soldier. And if you heard when he said Derek, he goes, yeah, Derek Centron on drums. I'm buddies with that guy. I was like, oh, shit. I didn't even know Derek Centron was in that band, you know. Derek Centron is an extremely talented drummer. And it was cool that he even mentioned him. Yeah, Derek Centron was a man. That's a great drummer, man. And I was like, wow, you know, and... uh, yeah, and he even knew it because I guess Toy Soldier only played one show. Because I said, I saw Toy Soldier. He goes, did you see us in a high school? I go, yeah, it was a battle of the bands. He goes, yeah, in Coral Springs. 
So I guess that was the only show they ever played. But I was there. Cause, uh-huh. And the only reason I know I saw Toy Soldier, because... <clears throat> ready, Ian? You ready? You used to be in Rock's Gang? No, because... You know who told me? Ruben De La Rosa? What else? I love that guy. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, I surprised him with that. And, you know, and then we even... Oh, why do I even have to tell you what else we did? You just fucking heard it. All right, so then... Uh, by the way, we're cutting this in two parts because this is going to this is gonna be very long. This will be the last interview till the next episode. And I hate to have you guys wait, and I know you're going to get upset with me. But, oh, my God, Ian, the preacher story. <laughs> we got to save uh-huh. that. We got to save that for the next interview. I mean the next oh, yeah, episode. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta tune in the next episode. But um but we do have a little surprise. I'm gonna give you guys a little surprise on this one at the very end that Ian doesn't even know, and I'll say it after the Dave Elveson interview. But we should touch upon before uh I play the Elveson interview, uh what went down. Um we we ended up going to another room. Which was good because you had no background noises, but uh, unfortunately we couldn't interview Dave Elfson alone. Uh, we had to interview him with his manager, I think. Right, right. Well, well, nobody got to interview him alone. Every every interview they did was with his manager Tom. Right. So, um, manager Tom pretty much took over the interview toward the end. So, uh, I never we didn't get to talk about you know Mustaine. And what he's going through, which I wanted to, but they cut us off. Uh, but uh, either way, the guy was cool. I'm not bashing the dude, but yeah. Uh, and, and and should say, Mustaine was the only interview where, like, like they ended it. Everybody else we talked to, we could have went as long as we wanted. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody nobody else cut us off. Now I do understand. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the most popular guests there and everybody had him on his list. So, so, you know, I am a little understanding there, but yeah, I wish we could have got a lot more questions. And I did talk to him about Dave Mustaine after the interview. And, uh, but you know, you know, I'm not really complaining that the guy, you know, took a long part and all that. What I'm complaining about is like, it took away many questions, you know? So I wouldn't have mind that guy being there and talking as long as he did with what you're about to hear, but as long as I could have had, you know, just what's up with the new Megadeth album and Dave Mustaine and yeah. talk about Megadeth period, but they do. Uh, he does talk about, I mean, Elson talks a lot here, you know? Yeah. And he did give us love and he put, he put the rock and metal combat on his Instagram. So, yep. Which prop, is prop, awesome. Props to him, man. Awesome. awesome. He, t- he took a picture of our little logo thing and he put it up on his Instagram. How cool is that? Yeah. And he, he was very nice to us. Very nice. And he, and even though he was in a rush afterwards, he took pictures, you know, with not only us, got, you know, by ourselves, but he took group photos. He, he signed my so far, so good, so what? So even though he was pressed for time, he did do some extra shit. So so thank you, Dave. And also we should say that uh, he played a gig with his band or I guess it was a yes. rock and roll residency. And that yes. kicked ass. Oh Lord! Did Play, it played deep tracks like Polaris, uh, Dawn Patrol, um, uh, what was the Devil's other? Island? Devil's Island, then you know some, yeah. you know, uh, classics after that. And 
And, and, and then they did Montrose and I had to leave. <laughs> uh, Montrose, probably my favorite Montrose song, uh, Rock the Nation. Uh, yeah. I, I dig that album. I make no apologies. But um, but uh, I got to get up on stage and yeah. sing the last part of Peace Sells with Dave Ellison on stage. So that's a little crowning achievement. I spent 3.5 seconds singing a Megadeth song with Dave Ellison. Right on. Righteous. Uh, but that was oh, really yeah. cool. That was a really cool show. Uh, and and uh, another thing that's important is he let like pretty much the crowd come up. Like if you wanted to get on stage, you know, so if you would have been there, you could have got up on stage yeah, too. Yeah. You know? And man, how, it was, I mean, uh, how kick-ass was Tony Harnell doing Green Man Alishi? Yeah, that was kick-ass. Man, he hit those high notes. And I didn't even know Tony Harnell was going to be there. Uh, I, yeah. talked, I talked to Sisnak after. He goes, oh, yeah, he was a last, uh, late edition. But yeah, I, and I, I saw him the night before. with uh, He did uh, Led Zeppelin with the Rock and Roll Residency. There you go. I missed that. But you see, that's somebody I would have loved to interview because I love TNT. You know? Yeah, I, I wish I would have known you liked them because I would have put down a request to talk to them. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of uh, Tell No Tales and Seven Seas. So. I, I would have thought they were too cock rock for you. Well, they, they after Seven Seas, yeah, Institution, blah. I mean, I, I actually, Tell No Tales, even though I'm not the biggest fan of 10,000 Lovers in One. But, yeah, uh, see, that's the only song I know, so I'm like, oh, Ralph ain't going to like these guys. Yeah, believe me, that album rocks. That song is kind of like, you know the single and the, the popiness. Yeah. I, I, I whatever. But anyway. I actually like that song, but that's all I ever heard from them. Yeah. Then and then knowing your taste, you'll hate the rest of the stuff that's good. Yeah. But anyway, so I, um, what do you say we get into the interview, or do you have something to say, Ian? No, let's get into Dave Ellison. Dave Ellison, and what's his, his buddy's name again? Tom. All right, here we go. Tom and Dave Ellison. All right, now we're here with Mr. Dave Ellison. Dave, who do you have with you here? This is my friend, my manager, my partner, my brother from another mother, Tom Hazard. Hello. How you doing, Tom? Good, man. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Hey, and we got Ian here. Yeah, I'm totally excited. This is the first, the first star that we had on our Facebook page. And yes. th this is when I thought this podcast could be something, like I can quit my day job. I posted an, an old ad. It was Alice Cooper and Megadeth from uh, from the tour you did, and you commented on it. You go, I remember that show, and I was like, Dave Ellison just commented. I can quit. I don't have to be an electrician. I'm a professional podcaster, and uh, no, I still work, but I'm very proud of that. How'd that work out for you? I don't, I don't, I don't give a shit. Dave Ellison commented on her page. I thought it was pretty awesome. And now he's on your show. Yeah. yeah. And we're at an official podcast expo. Yeah. So. yeah. Good no, for all a, of us. I mean, I think that's cool because it speaks to how important podcasts are. I mean, more and more I do more podcasts. I just did, you know, we do radio tours which are kind of these little 10-minute call-in and interviews. You kind of do a couple hours worth of them, and you hit all the big stations around the country. But more and more podcasts are coming into those. You know, there's kind of the, um, you know, internet radio uh, craze. In a way, the podcasts kind of, you know, get even a little wider than that because of where they can reside and where they can exist. And I think the podcast thing, um, it's just, from, especially for metal, it's, it's a huge part of our path forward for us as artists and you know megadeth's always been a brand a band that's embraced new technology so 
And like what I told Tom, you, when we first started working together, I said, I do every interview, always. Because you never know which right. small little interview, where they all end up on Blabbermouth, they all end up getting picked up by, by well, the big, by the big boys. Yeah, this, this, this one's off the radar. Good. So th- it's as if this interview never happened. Yeah, yeah. And not only enough, we're yeah. the podcast that raised the most money because of our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, yeah, that on? Yeah. Every year we raise yeah. the most money, but we never get on Blabbermouth. Yeah. Uh, we are an underground show, but... Yeah. And speaking of technology, yeah. that, that you guys were ahead of the time because I remember going to see the Cryptic Writing Tour with mm-hmm. uh, the Misfits, right. Sunrise, Florida, and you had like, I think it was a free CD you were giving out, and it had like a dot-com on it. I was like, what is yeah. this dot-com yeah. thing? Yeah. Megadeth had the first website ever, the first band website, yeah. Megadeth, Arizona. Megadeth.com was the yeah. first band website ever. And what was that, like 94? It was 94. I remember we were out in Arizona where... We had moved to, Max Norman had constructed a studio there, and, and at one point, Capitol Records flew out to give us sort of the marketing plan of, of the record, and they, they, they sat down and they said, we want to incorporate this new thing, this new technology called the World Wide Web. And uh, I remember we we're going, well, what is it? And they're like, we don't really know yet, but we think it's going to be big. So, uh, but they, they did, and they, they talked about, <laughs> excuse me, launching this uh, Megadeth, Arizona is what they, and, and excuse me, the tagline was, where the hell is Megadeth, Arizona? And uh, it was this very deep, very cumbersome website that had like, you know, I don't know, 34 pages on it or something. Uh, but we could chat with the fans. Dave and I would go around the world, plug our laptops into very bad phone lines in the Sheraton around the world, and, and, uh, and we would chat with fans. And, and that's, um, then, and then on the next album, on Cryptic Writings, we... We had um, made friends with these uh, fans of ours up in Silicon Valley because a lot of the Megadeth fans, of course, now the next generation in the 90s, they were, the, they were techies living up in Silicon Valley. And they, had, they owned the Megadeth.com name. And it was kind of in this era when everybody was squatting on names. Like you could buy Chevrolet.com and right. hopefully, you know, get some big payout because, right. you know, right? They, they were kind of doing that, but they were, they were cool enough. I think there was kind of a cap on how much you could actually have to pay. And I, I understand, I think we only paid them like, I don't know, a hundred bucks or very little wow. for the name. Yeah, there was kind of some regulations on be, on squatting and that kind of stuff. And, and they were fans and they, they wanted to see it be successful. So we, we bought the name. Dave actually started a little internet company called Troika and had some people working and bought some servers and to, to, to run, uh, run the website and everything. And But that then started our Cyber Army, which is our fan club. <clears throat> which is still going to this day and and you know that that's that connection to the fans is always something that that has always been big in metal we've kept it going i mean it probably started with the kiss army years ago you know having yeah. a fan club but we've kept that whole that whole concept going um because it's it's uh, the cyber army for megadeth is a way that fans because everybody can be on the internet but the cyber army is a way to give we, we offer tickets first we give some exclusive things for them so that if they're a member of that and they, they pay to be part of that, that, that they do get some, some extra VIP perks out oh, of it. Oh, yeah, that. I've seen that. Like, the, yeah. you know, exclusive shirts, you know, exclusive merchandise. Yeah, uh, everything, there's always pre-sales for everything for the Cyber Army before, like the Mega Cruise and yeah. stuff like that. There's always, you know, when that euthanasia show went on sale, that didn't happen. There yeah. was a Cyber Army pre-sale for that. <laughs> right. I'm on the Megadeth mailing list. I just as a fan, and I get it, and it's funny. Dave always forged me all this stuff for management. It's like, yeah, I got it. I've been on the Megadeth mailing list for like 20 years. <laughs> I get all the emails about the Megadeth cruise because I was hoping to go. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately not, but I mean, I get it. I was like, oh. I mean, it's it's, it's a great package. You're off. That's 
you can't afford to go. You can't afford to. See, you've been an electrician. You can keep it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the truth of it is we do that in our in our Ellison Industries wheelhouse. You know, Tom has been great with that. Immediately once we started EMP, we started a, uh, a merch company, Merch Live, that, that does all of our direct fulfillment. And we and we do the same thing. We, we keep it very much in-house. Once you come into our EMP combat Ellison world, if you will, uh, Tom has really constructed a great back end to that, that that really, you know, facilitates the VIP experience. When you buy the book, you get it first, you get a set of strings, like use bass strings, you know, like really, you know, do the, as I know as a fan, um, I sent five bucks into the Kiss Army and they didn't send me anything and it pissed me off and I was, wow. I was mad at Kiss and the truth of it was I've read their books now and turns out Kiss Army was actually run by some fans in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, who started the thing, and they kind of just sort of, I guess, collaborated with them. But, but you know, again, I, you know, at the end of the day, it's the name on the door that you blame, right? So right. if the name is Ellison and your book doesn't show up, you're pissed at me, not at the mailbox or, right. you know, the postman. You're, you're mad at me. So we really go to great lengths to make sure that all that, you know, fulfillment and everything, and that's yeah, all because always, of the web, you know? It's, it's always there's so much variable and so much you know murphy's law in this business especially when you're doing vinyl and sometimes it takes eight months to fucking get vinyl done but whatever you know you stay on top of it the best everybody's used to this amazon mentality you know they order something they have it the next day and it's like we're an independent company but you know people always get their shit and we're always we always take care of them send them extra stuff and yeah we love our fans and the people that support us and what we do and, it, and it's really important that everybody's happy at the end of the day but we are working on Ellison Prime so you'll get yeah. your you'll get your order, yeah, quicker. Get your order <laughs> you got a new album you just put out um, and, and it's got a mixture of uh, you know different different demos different stuff that you've done over the years new recordings you record again with uh, Chris Poland which I, I found was very and you're on the album as well you know basically what it was was we went in the studio um, we had the book coming out. We were in Tampa last year, the PBX thing, and uh, Dave, you know, I said, Dave, I said, we have a studio in Tampa called Master. I said, Dude, let's go to the studio and just write a fucking song, just for fun. We'd never done anything musical together. So we're like, let's go to the studio. So we just went and wrote the song Vultures. And then we are like, fuck it, maybe we'll use this as a download with the book or something, you know? And then Dave had all these other cool songs, Hammer and, and, and Sleeping Giants, a handful of these old, cool instrumental songs laying around that never quite came to fruition. They had awesome riffs. They're like, these parts were awesome, but these parts, you know? So he's like, here, write something to those. So I kind of took those and our friend studio in, in Phoenix, John Aquilino, the Platinum Underground, and I kind of chopped those up and rewrote to them and kind of restructured them, and I got DMC to sing on Sleeping Giants, and then we got Mark Tremonti to play on Hammer the Hammer, and and Chris Poland, and Dave McLean, and, and we got AK to come in and sing on that with me, and you know DMC from Run DMC sings on Sleeping Giants, and then it went from that to we're going to do an EP to... Well, Dave had these other demos with John Bush and David Glenn Isley that were songwriting demos from, like, 1993 from, like, the Countdown to Extinction Era, stuff he'd brought into Megadeth Records that didn't get used. And then he had a bunch of F5 stuff. So it was really just this cool compilation. Of, it's kind of a celebration of all the stuff Dave does outside of Megadeth, you know, which doesn't really get the light shown out of that much, and that's really what we wanted to do with this record. I mean, we show, we did these new songs that honestly are new. Some of them are 10 years old parts of them, but we really took them and built them into something new. And, and, and look, the record, and, and it's cool. So the, the vinyl's a double vinyl. There's a couple extra Divigo and Isley tracks on it. And uh, 
We got Christian Nairn from Game of Thrones, Hodor to do a remix. He's a big EDM DJ. But you know, and then the CD, you know, there's the first <clears> disc, it's a two disc, the second disc is a compilation of all the EMP artists, Last Crack, Doyle, Ron Keel, Mark Slaughter, Dalskin, Archer Nation. I, I mean it just tons of cool EMP stuff. So yeah, I mean look, the record came out, it debuted on like thirteen billboard charts mm. two weeks ago. The book came out the same week and it was like number one on Amazon. So it's been you know, the record was like top twenty on iTunes when it came out. Yeah, it's been really positive and really gratifying and something we just pulled out of thin air, man. We weren't like, hey, let's go to a solo record. It was like, let's do this song and then it turned into an EP and then it turned into let's do turned into like a double vinyl, double C D, like turned into this thing that took on a life of its own. And again, it's cool to showcase David's prowess as a guitar player and a songwriter. And and he's known for being an amazing fucking bass player, but he's all these other things that he doesn't really get the recognition for, and that's what I think Sleeping Giants was about. You know, it's kind of showing, you know, they know David as part of Megadeth, but, you know, I, I like to showcase David for all the other shit that he is outside of the amazing fucking bass player in Megadeth, you know, and I think that's really what this record and all this other stuff we're doing is about. So you were talking about, like, the older demos. Did he keep, like, most of them as is, or did you... Like, no, they, we, we remastered them, that was it. Everything you didn't do anything. We did nothing. We remastered them. Because yeah, our buddy Richard <clears throat> Easterling just went through and remastered them, made them kind of sound consistent, and that was it. I mean, nothing else. The new songs, yeah, I think they're telling us to wrap up. They're giving wow. us, they're yeah. giving us the, the hook. All right, they're throwing out the hook. All right, well, hook. but dude, it was so awesome. We'll, yeah. we'll chat some more another yeah, time. Yeah, hopefully call we'll us. have you on the yeah. show. Yeah, call, Thank call you. us. We'll send Thank us a little call in and do a, a full. Thank you so much. Well, there you go. That was some of Elson. Uh, the interview, and uh, so on. I wanted to continue doing this, but Ian's got to go. So yeah. we're going to cut this in two parts. Uh, next part will be the live. We got. We still got the interview with uh, the guy from Exodus. Yeah. And, and uh, Michael Sweet, which was an excellent interview. Uh, and Eerie Vaughn. Eerie Vaughn. Eerie Vaughn. So you're, and the live broadcast of uh, Ian and I, that was just so fucking crazy with TikTok, man. It's going to be historic. It's going to, that one is one of the, the highlights of this whole podcast history. Was that, have you, have you, have you re-listened to it yet? No, but I got it. No. Thanks to Mr. Vincent okay. Cavanaugh sent me the videos. Yes. I yes. Bre- Thank you, Vincent. I, yeah. I breezed through it to see how it sounds. Sounds excellent. And it will be up on the YouTube page too as well. But, um, yeah, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, we have audio and video of that, so that's awesome. Yeah, and you know what? We're going to try to put it up, like, less than a week. We'll try to do it as quick as we can. Hopefully tomorrow we can do it. Yeah. All right, so... We might make, we, we might make you wait a week and a half for not going to the expo. No, man. <laughs> people listen. To, some of them were there. We got to do it for them. Oh, yeah. I'm we, fucking kidding. We got to do it for Tim Bream. and Tim Bream is dying to know the preacher story. So, you know, oh, the legendary, legendary preacher story. Yeah. So, man, that's that's how I want to end the next episode. (laughs) I I, I agree. But I'm sure you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, I just I'm just going to tell you the next one's better. Um, But I'm not going to leave you guys, uh, you know, hanging like this. I think we should put up something very special, something we did that night. And that was Ian and I performing. You can't stop rock and roll. Uh, by Twisted Sister. Now, the little backstory about this: me and Ian and I were supposed to trade lines, 
But Ian was yes. so drunk, and it wasn't really my idea. It was um, uh, oh, the guitar player's name, um, Lee. Yeah, Lee McCormick. He's the one. Oh. I th- I believe it was him that said, "Why don't you just do the chorus, Ian? I mean, that's easy to remember." And you do the verses. So we did. And I fucked up the last verse. Uh, so it shows how much. And I was sober. Um, but <laughs> but it was great. We made the place fucking rock. You know, excuse the quality. I mean, it's, a, you know, but it sounds really good for a phone. So, uh, and, and check, I mean, Ian, several times during the show, song, he goes, can't stop, can't stop. He starts singing the last part of the song. And I was like, yep, I knew not to have this guy sing the verse. <laughs> and and when you see the video, it's going to pop up soon. I mean, I'm sure some of you have because it's been on YouTube, uh, on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been on it's been on the, the page. Yeah. Ian, I mean, when you watch it, I mean, try your hardest not to watch, you know, my my spectacular, you know, stage presence and keep your eye on Ian. It's fucking hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> and during the solo he goes bop bop zittily bop he thought he was David Lee Roth there for a second <laughs> he, he, he thought we were doing just a gigolo that's how drunk he was but uh let's show how much we fucking rock bro this is Ian I and yes uh, and, and do you remember everybody up on stage I know uh, uh McCormick great Lee, Lee McCormick on guitar I know uh Bill Ellum was on bass yeah. And I, I apologize uh, to the drummer. And I believe there's another guitar player, too. Yeah, there was. And I, my, my apologies, guys. My apologies. Uh, we should be better prepared because I know there's a list somewhere. But uh, there's there's a chance that this won't be the, uh, the first recording you hear of it. Because I believe all this stuff was uh, professionally recorded from the soundboard. Okay. So we might even have like a better copy to air at a later date. Yeah. And when we do that, I will make sure everybody gets proper notification because there's also a soundboard recording of our live show right? that uh, th- that we haven't got yet. So, you know, I- I'm sure we'll put those up in other episodes no, well, or well, maybe the- I'm going to wait till we get that audio of the live show for the YouTube exclusive. Yeah, right? I, was, I was just going to say it might be better for, for, for the video versions. But trust me uh, that what Ed, uh, Karen Strachey did, it sounds perfect. You even hear yeah. TikTok, man. You, you mean you mean Kavanaugh? Vincent God, Kavanaugh. <laughs> why do I always get them confused? Because they're the L.A. guys. Oh, there you go. Uh, but uh, you hear, see, TikTok man has a lot to do with our live performance. He was so funny. Oh, and, yes, he and, was. And you hear him perfectly. You hear him perfectly on, the, you know, Kavanaugh's uh, recording. So, um, but that'll be in the next episode. So we'll come back and say our goodbyes. But check this out, man. Ian and I doing You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Bop, bop, zitty, booty, bop. <laughs> Is that a pledge pin on your uniform? Let me hear you. We are the sick motherfuckers.
Right, Ian? Oh, fuck yeah. How do you fuck know? Yeah. You were too next, drunk to remember. Because uh, I watched the video. Uh, like, oh, yeah, that's I, right. I, I watched the video like like you look at your KISS numbers. I was like, hey, that's me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. I'm rubbing it, off on you. It was a lot you. of fun. It's good to yeah, know and, my and, ego yeah. rubbing off on you. Yeah, I'm learning how to be an asshole, too. Hey! Uh, <laughs> but next year, God damn it, we're, I know we'll do it again because it was so much fun. And I don't care what song it is. I'm going to learn the lyrics and I'm going to go up there with, I'm, I'm going to have like a teleprompter or some shit. I'm singing next year. God damn it. We're going to have fun. And I'm it all, was a, it I'm was a all great for time. that. I'm all for that. Ian. I wouldn't mind you singing with me. I just thought, yeah. you know, uh, I yeah. thought, I thought it wasn't going to work. And with your bop, bop, zitty bop and can't stop, can't stop it. I was right. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. made up for it. And we got the whole crowd singing. Oh yeah. Julia oh, yeah, Hill had- was into it. Yeah, it was in a, a great turnout, man. You know, it, it's so funny, and we'll get into this more in the next episode with our live show. But but what a difference from the first year where nobody wanted to fucking know us to where uh, you know we were kind of, we're kind of a big deal there this year. Yeah, last <laughs> last uh, time we did a live broadcast, people were running out. This year they were running in. Yes, because uh, dude, yes. when we started, there was like wait, what, like maybe ten people. And then by the time we ended, there wasn't a, an empty seat, and there were even people standing out in the hallway looking at us. Yes, you know, it was crazy. yes, it was very successful. And they were all laughing their ass off, man. We were on fire. Yeah. It was a good time. It was fucking. But you, awesome. you got you got to wait to the next episode to hear that legendary performance. And you know, 
uh, I already mentioned the preacher story, but something like almost as good as the preacher story, assholes and Ubers. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> oh, man, was that epic. And it happened right before the preacher story. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was our last night there. That happened after. And we got to talk about the Cisnac uh, hangout. Oh, yeah. We got a lot of shit to cover we in the next episode. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. So, um, here, so, uh, yeah, let's sign off there, Ian. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And, yes. uh, and thank you, everybody who donated, everybody who showed up. This was a huge success. That's right, kitties. And, uh, boy. And we're going to have it up soon. Uh, part two, which is like the crescendo. Is that a word? Yes. Even? Yes, that actually is a word. That's like, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if it applies, but it is a word. Yeah, I think that's something you put on your lapel, a crescendo. Uh, I, I think it's something that comes at the end. Right on, but, uh, dude. Ubers and assholes. <laughs> coming soon. So thanks, everybody. Any last words, Ian? Because I want to do the last, last word. Nah, man, I'm just going to hand it over to you. Go ahead, say it. All right. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. And smack a gob <laughs>